Amen. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. We thank the Lord this morning for his word and his grace. Father, we come to you this morning. Thank you for another Lord's Day. I'm excited to be here today to be gathered among your people. It is such a great privilege, and I pray, Father, that all of us understand and appreciate and give thanks to you for the privilege of the gathering of your church. Uh, through common grace, even those who don't believe in you, Lord, still come to church, and we thank you for that. So, Father, we just want to express thanksgiving and gratitude to you this morning. You are the great God. You are the sovereign creator of the heavens and the earth and everything in it. Lord, your word declares at the beginning that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And Father, as we look around and look up and look down, we see evidences, Lord, of your creation. We see evidence of your wisdom in creating everything. When we look at our bodies, Lord, we can see the design of it, that our bodies didn't evolve from animals or anything else, but Lord, that you sovereignly created our bodies to function the way that they do. And Lord, because of that, we have reason to give thanks to you. When we see, Lord, all the, the seasons that we have and uh, we see our planet uh, that we live on that inhabits uh, all types of life, Lord, we should give thanks to you for your creation, for your sovereignty in creating this whole universe. And Father, sometimes in our sinfulness, we don't give thanks to you, but we, we rather complain we rather mumble and grumble and, and murmur at our lot in life. And Father, we ask you to forgive us for times where we have done that, where we have mumbled, where we have been ungrateful, where we, where we have shown ingratitude towards you for the many graces that you have given us. So Father, as I begin our prayer this morning, I just want to give thanks to you. Lord, your word tells us to give thanks to the Lord for you are good and your mercy endures forever Lord we're here this morning because of your mercy we're able to move and to sing and to, and to pray and to read and to listen because of your great mercy toward us because Father none of us deserve your mercy that is what makes it merciful none of us deserve life none of us deserve uh, the health of our being but, Father, it is because of your great mercy that you have done this for us. And, Lord, you, you show your mercy to us despite us. There's nothing that we can do to earn it. There's nothing that we can do to not earn it. Lord, it's purely by your sovereign will that you show us mercy. And, Lord, this should cause us to burst forth in thanksgiving to you. All of our mouths should declare thanks be to God for his mercy endures forever. Lord, we will consider your handiworks, the works of your hand. We should give thanks to you. The way that you provide for us, we should give thanks to you. For our children, the way that their parents provide, provide for them, they should give thanks to you also. And Lord, for those of us who are adults, who have jobs, or if we don't have jobs, we have some type of retirement income. We should give thanks to you also, Lord. 
So, Father, I'm calling all of us this morning as we pray to thanksgiving, to giving thanks to you, to giving praise, honor, and glory to you. For, Lord, you are worth it. You are worthy to be praised. Lord, we thank you for our children, from our youngest child all the way up to the oldest adult here at our church. We thank you for the multiple generations of people who attend our church. I thank you, Lord, for all of our church members. I love our church. I love the flock that you have given me. And, Father, I pray that you cultivate in our hearts love towards one another, biblical love towards each other, that we as a church family continue to love, honor, and serve each other, that we continue to pray for one another, that we continue to encourage one another and uplift one another and also admonish one another when there's cause to do so do so to give gospel encouragement to each other Lord that is my prayer for us as a church that we all continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ Father I pray that if there is anyone among us who are sick that you may heal them Father heal them with your touch Father I pray that if there is anyone in here who is, is suffering in other ways in their health or any other ways in finances or with children or with marriages or, or whatever the case may be, Father, that we look to you for saving, that we look to you for help. The psalmist declares in Psalm 121, I will lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and earth. So, Father, I pray this morning that we look to you as our help that we look to you as our source of hope because father you only are the only hope that we have in this world and father because of that we look to you lord i pray for our sister churches our, our brothers that are laboring in the gospel this morning those at grace fellowship redeemer church anderson bible christian fellowship iron city baptist mountain view church father you bless all of us, all of us men who are leading our churches, that we lead them well, that we shepherd well, that you strengthen us to persevere in pastoral ministry, no matter how hard and challenging it gets as it often does. Persevere all of us as brethren, Father, in pastoral ministry. And Father, I pray this morning for the preaching of your word as we look at the parable of the tares or the wheat that you fear me with your spirit to preach this text well, to exegete the passage rightly. And Father, I pray that you send the spirit to illuminate the text, illuminate the truths in this passage to the hearers of this message, both here in this assembly and those who will listen to it on the podcast. Lord, I pray that you may use this message to encourage the faithful and to convict sinners in their sins that they may repent and turn to you and be saved. Father, use this message to your glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. Let us turn to Matthew, the 13th chapter. The last three weeks we were in the parable of the soils. And if you read through Matthew 
the 13th chapter, you'll see there are several parables in there, all which we will be covering. But the first one, after the parable of the soils, is the parable of the tares. Some translations say the wheat and the tares. Some say the parables of the weeds. But this is a very common parable, and some of the phrasing in here has been uh, used uh, before. But what Jesus does with this parable, as he does with the parable of the weeds, he gives the parable, and then he gives the explanation. So we're going to look at verses 24 through 30, which is the parable itself, and then verses 36 through 43, which is the explanation of the parable. So hear the word of the Lord. He says, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to gather, to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then verse 36 gives the explanation. Then Jesus said to the multitudes, I'm sorry, then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And the disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The son of man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So, just a few questions uh, as we give some observations here. First question is, is Jesus represented in this parable? And is there a person who corresponds to the true king? And are there true subjects and counterfeit subjects represented in this kingdom? This parable will answer these questions. Again, is Jesus represented in this parable? Is there a person who corresponds to the true king? And are there true subjects and counterfeit subjects represented in the kingdom? 
This parable is a response to Israel's rejection of Christ. Remember the the first 12 chapters of Matthew, uh, it goes through the birth of Christ, then it goes through Christ's ministry. And in chapter 12, uh, when Jesus, when the Pharisees finally uh, drew the last straw, or rather, they pulled the last straw by saying that uh, Jesus, the works that he did were attributable to Beelzebub, which is the prince of the demons. They attributed the works of the spirit to Satan. They committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And at that point, Jesus knew that the full rejection of Israel had been completed with the Pharisees' final rejection of him. So at this point, he turned to teaching his disciples. And so with this parable right here, this parable is a response to Israel's rejection of Christ. So until Jesus comes back, his kingdom will grow. Now, does anything in this parable relate to judgment by the king? That's a question that we will answer. So first it says, he put forth to them. It says that in verse 24, or he set before them. This means that he laid this parable before or alongside the other parables. That's why it says another parable he put to them or put forth to them or set before them. So the kingdom element, remember these are parables of the kingdom that we talked about the last few weeks. The kingdom element of this parable is as follows. The farmer is the king's title. And that's the son of man. So the farmer is the king's title. In this parable. Okay. The farmer went out to sow. And that farmer is the son of man who is Christ. So the answer to the question, is Christ represented in this parable? Yes. The true subjects are the sons of the kingdom. Okay? Because I asked the question, are there true subjects and counterfeit subjects? Yes. The true subjects in this parable are the sons of the kingdom. Those are the true subjects. Now, the counterfeit subjects are the sons of the evil one. Those are the counterfeits. Okay? A counterfeit is something not just necessarily fake, but a counterfeit is something that appears to be real. It's not just something that's just outright fake because a counterfeit is actually hard to, to spot. A counterfeit is something that appears to look like the real thing, but upon closer inspection... It doesn't. So that's the counterfeit subjects in this parable are the sons of the evil one. And the unusual growth that is represented in this parable are that the wheat and tares grow together. They grow together. They don't grow separate. They grow together. Just like uh, Daryl knows this. He has a garden and some of us probably have flower beds in front of our house. You see that the weeds grow up among the plants they don't like grow off separate that would be nice but the weeds grow right up in the middle of your plants right in the middle of your fruit or your or, or your vegetable garden or whatever the weeds just grow right up in the middle they don't you know grow to the side it would be nice if they did right it'd be easy to get rid of them when they grow right smack dab in the middle, you know you gotta uh, de-weeding is not something that you know anyone wants to do 
And then you have the end of the age, which is the separation that happens. The end of the age. You should find that in verse 40. So it would be at the end of this age. So that is the great separation, the separation of the harvest. And then the exhortation to hear is the conclusion of the interpretation where Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So that is the kingdom elements present in this parable, as all the other parables have. So our big idea here is we're going to examine the public teaching, the private teaching, and then the application of this parable. So when we look at the first principles, the first principle is the public teaching. So the first part of this passage, verses 24 through 30, we see the public preaching of this parable. And the central point of Christ's public teaching is that until the reapers gather the harvest, the wheat and the tares will grow up together in the same field. Okay, that's the, the central point of the public teaching. And we're going to look at the private teaching next when we get to that principle. But this is the principle of the public teaching. The point is that until the reapers gather the harvest, the wheat and tares will grow up together. So looking at verse 24, it says the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. When you see the phrase the kingdom of heaven, it is mentioned only in Matthew's gospel. And it appears 17 times in Matthew's gospel. Ten times is mentioned in introducing of a parable. That's why we call the parables in Matthew parables of the kingdom because in ten of those parables he says the kingdom of heaven is like such and such. If you look at verse 31 you see mustard seed which we'll get to next week uh, you see verse 31 the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. You look at verse uh, 44 hidden treasure the kingdom of heaven is like verse 45 the kingdom of heaven is like verse 47 the kingdom of heaven is like Okay, so we see that these are parables of the kingdom. Now, this phrase does not mean that the kingdom of heaven is exactly like the man in this parable. Remember, parables make one central point, not many points found in the details. So it refers to the present kingdom during the church age. Okay, because Christ's millennial kingdom will not have counterfeit subjects in it. So he's speaking of the kingdom. He's not saying that it is exactly like this man in the parable or it, any of those other parables. He's just making one central point in this parable just as he does in all of them. So first, the farmer sold good seed. It says here, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sold what kind of seed? Good seed in his field but soon after his enemy sold tares and tares was a kind of uh, darnel d-a-r-n-a-l r-l thomas said this in his commentary uh, the greek uh, and aramaic dictionary uh, the tares were a type of darnel whatever darnel is uh, but it is a a grain of a flour that resembles wheat so remember we talked about counterfeits they look like the real thing so the tares looked like wheat. It resembled wheat. 
So they sold tares among the wheat. This is an annoying weed that looks very much like wheat, especially before maturity. And it could carry a poisonous fungus. And if it is harvested and ground together with wheat, the resulting flour is spoiled. That's what Klein Snodgrass said in his commentary on this verse. So this tear that was sown among the wheat could not be easily noticed. And it was an annoying weed, kind of like the weeds that grow in our garden. But when the gatherers took up the wheat, they took up the darnel with it, not knowing what it was. And then when they made flour out of it, the flour was contaminated because the weed was in there with it. So you see what it did to the harvest. So about the seed, he says he sowed good seed. So about the seed, whatever good seed there is in the world, all of it comes from the hand of Christ. So when you see good seed, it has to come from the hand of Christ. And it is of his sowing. And Matthew Henry said this. He said, truths preached, graces planted, souls sanctified are good seed. And all are owing to Christ. Ministries, or ministers rather, he says, are instruments in Christ's hand to sow good seed. Are employed by him and under him. And the success of their labors depends purely upon his blessing. So that it may be well said, it is Christ and no other that sows the good seed. He is the son of man, one of us, that his terror might not make us afraid. So Matthew Henry is saying any good that happens in the life of a Christian, in the life of a Christian minister, is due to the hand of Christ. The Bible tells us that every good gift and perfect gift comes from where? Above. From the Father of lights, with whom there's no variableness nor shadow of turning. So this good seed was because of Christ. It was sown by Christ. Now, as the kingdom grows, as we see in this public teaching, the true subjects and the counterfeit subjects will grow together. Not soon after the wheat began to produce a crop, the tares grow up with it because it says here when the grain has sprouted and produced a crop then the tares also appeared now how can tares come up when good seed is sown because an enemy of the farmer sowed the tares unbeknownst to the servants because the servants are not out there day and night they're out there day but they're not out there at night so this evil farmer comes in and does what? Sows the tares among the wheat in the cover of night, so to speak. But the farmer knew who the culprit was because he says what? An enemy has done this in verse 28. Farmers know their crop. A true farmer knows his crop. A true farmer knows when someone comes in and tries to destroy his crop because that's how well they know their farm. And the tares are so similar to the wheat that it would kill the wheat if the servants took up the tares when they sprang up because you couldn't possibly separate them. 
it was impossible to do that because they grew up with among the wheat they grew up among the wheat so the farm because the farmers asked uh, do you want us to gather go and gather them up he says no lest you gather up the tares you will also uproot the wheat with them so instead the servants instead of the servants rather gathering the tares what do they do the farmer told them to let the wheat and the tares grow together until the harvest when it would be easier to separate the two if you notice on farms especially now with the machines and everything when they go and gather up the corn and the wheat they don't take time to separate the weed from the corn stalks or from the wheat do they the machine does that you know back then they'd do it by hand but they took up the harvest all together they do that on farms now they don't take time those machines don't take time and pick the weeds apart but what would happen to the tares in this parable they would be gathered together and they would be burned but the wheat would be gathered to the barn so the barn so the separation will take place that's the central point there and so now we see the private teaching of the parable which begins at verse 36 so the primary point of the private teaching is that the kingdom is present despite the presence of evil and that evil will be dealt with at the judgment amen and amen how many of us know that evil will be dealt with do you believe in the final judgment as Christians you should there will be a final judgment evil will be dealt with it seems like it's raging and there's no end to it but God will put an end to this evil Jesus sent the multitudes away in verse 36 and went into the house and then at that point the disciples asked him to explain to them the parable and what he did he explained all seven details of the parable with seven points of correspondence so the seven points that he made to the public teaching he gave the correspondence here in this passage so first he says he who sows the good seed is who the son of man who is himself he's speaking of himself one of his titles the field is who the world and we're going to explain what that what that means the significance of that the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom the true subjects of the kingdom are the good seed but the tares are the children of satan the children of the devil the evil one the enemy who sowed among them is the devil it is the devil or satan the harvest is the end of the age the end of the church age okay when christ will come and consummate his kingdom and the reapers in this parable are the angels so he, he gives the explanation in verses 37 through 39 now verse 40 provides the major emphasis of this parable okay that god will use his angels to separate the true sons of the kingdom from the counterfeit sons of the evil one at the end of the age so who's going to do the separating in the end 
the angels, God's servants. We're not going to do the separating. That shows us that it is not up to us to do the separating. God will use his angels to do that. We can't discern always the wheat from the tares. We can't always discern that, the truth from the counterfeit. It must be understood, and this is one of the points I wanted to get to, that the field in the, is the world, as it says here in this parable. The field is the world, as Jesus says, not the church, as many have preached. Many people preach that this wheat and tares parable is about the church. That you have uh, true Christians and counterfeit Christians in the same church. That is true. But that is not what this parable is about. Jesus says the uh, field is the world, the cosmos. It is a kingdom parable. In the world, the false and true subjects of Christ's kingdom will be mixed until Christ comes back and separates the false from the true and the counterfeit from the real. So this is not just confined to the church. It is confined to, rather, the whole world. That there are people in the world who claim to be in Christ's kingdom, but who aren't. There are people who claim to be subjects in God's kingdom, but they're not. And who truly knows the subjects of his kingdom but God? We think we know. In, in, in some cases, it's obvious, but in other cases, it's not. But this mixed group of true and false sons will end with separation and judgment. It says here in verses 41 through 42, the Son of Man will send out his angels, gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So the angels will gather out of the kingdom all that offend. Offend means all causes of sin, those who cause people to sin. And those who practice lawlessness, who are the evildoers, the angels are going to gather them out. All people who cause others to sin are going to be dealt with. Those who practice lawlessness. They have no respect for God's moral law. They're going to be gathered up. The language of verse 41, as George Ladd says, cannot be pressed to mean that the evildoers will be gathered out of the kingdom. Cannot mean, rather, that the evildoers who will be gathered out of the kingdom have actually been in the kingdom. It means no more than that they will be separated from the righteous so that they do not enter the kingdom. So in other words, this goes back to the fact that this is not dealing with the modern church. This is an eschatological um, parable, meaning it deal is dealing with the end times, the end of the age. Because you can't have counterfeit subjects in God's kingdom. Because God's kingdom is only for the true subjects. And this reminds me of Malachi 
3 and 16, it says this. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was opened before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. And I will spare them as man spares his own who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like star-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. All those who practice lawlessness, they will be thrown into the fire. They will be judged. They will be dealt with. So for us as believers, we must hold on to this fact that all those corrupt doctrines, all corrupt worship, all corrupt practices which have offended, which have caused people to sin and to stumble in their faith, all those things that have been scandals to the church and stumbling blocks to men's consciences, they shall be condemned by the righteous judge in that great day. And they will be consumed by the brightness of his coming. All the wood, hay, and stubble will be consumed. That's the encouragement that we have for all these apostate churches and all these apostate denominations that are leading people astray into uh, falsehoods, into false doctrines, into false worship, into false practices. All of them claim to be the wheat. But they are the tares being sown among the wheat. Why aren't they done away with yet? Because that great day of separation has not happened yet. But it will happen. And unless they repent of their wickedness, of their wicked doctrines, of their wicked worship and practices, of the way they've caused people to stumble and believe a false Christ, unless they repent, they're going to be gathered up with the other tares. That's what's going to happen. So what's going to happen? They're going to be tossed into the furnace of fire. Verse 40. They'll be tossed into the furnace of fire. And well, what will be happening in this fire? There will be what? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. You ever been in such pain before that you grit your teeth real hard? That's what gnashing of teeth is like. It's similar to that. But it's not only going to be 
gnashing of teeth, there's going to be weeping, there's going to be sorrow. It's too late to sorrow now. It's too late. They will be of Christ's left hand, to whom he will say, Depart from me, you curse, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25 and 41. They will be on the left hand. And what a terrible but deserved judgment for the sons of the evil one. Because they wreaked havoc in Christ's church. They've sown discord among the brethren. Do you know that you have some churches and denominations right now who are advocating to pay for women to get abortions? Instead of supporting their local uh, pregnancy centers, they're advocating openly for their churches to pay for women to kill their own babies. You have people in the name of Christ who claim to be of Christ, who claim to be in his kingdom. Right now, who are advocating support women killing their own babies? Unless they turn to Christ and be saved, they're going to meet the same judgment. He's going to say to those wicked people, depart from me, you cursed. You have churches hosting drag queens and churches that have so-called transgender uh, pastors, in quotes, who openly advocate homosexual marriage, not marriage, who are leading their flock astray, who hang that hideous-looking rainbow flag with all those colors in it outside of their congregation. I mean, outside of their churches. And you know what they're doing? They're causing the people that go to that church to stumble, to sin. They're leading them away from the true Christ. And what's going to happen to them? They're sowing discord among the brethren. They're rejecting the gospel of Christ. They're not considering their sinful state. They're not considering the sin that they are committing by doing those things. They think they're being loving. They think they're being compassionate and empathetic. But what they're doing is destroying the faith of those who follow them and who listen to them. No, they're not full of love. They're full of hate. They hate Christ. They hate the word. And one day, friends, they will be burning without being consumed. It's not going to be annihilation of the body. No, they're going to be burning without being consumed. They will be weeping with no relief because of their sorrow which is too late. They will be gnashing their teeth because of the torment, the pain, and the agony 
of their suffering. Why? Because they are tares sown among the wheat. They are counterfeit subjects. And they don't even talk about this fact. And some professed Christians don't. Jesus mentioned hell several times in the Gospels, including Matthew. You listen to these people, Jesus never talked about hell. He always talked about what? Love, 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 helping the poor, feeding the homeless, which is one of the many calls of the church, not the only ones. But you listen to the apostates. They feel because they have soup kitchens and they give out food different times of the year. And they take care of homeless people, which are not bad things. But my point is, they think that because they're doing those things, all the other false worship that they're doing doesn't matter. But it actually does. It matters more. But they're going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're going to be agonizing in their suffering because they are proving to be counterfeit subjects of the kingdom. But Jesus, again, does mention hell several times in the gospel. Hell is a real place where real suffering will take place, Christian. It will take place. It is an actual place. It is not a metaphorical place. It is a real place. And no, it's not going to be one great big party like the world thinks. Where everybody's kind of kicking it, you know, drinking their drinks and smoking on their cigars and, you know, having their legs just kicked up, just having one big grand party down there with the devil. No, Jesus said there's going to be what? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's going to be sorrow. It's going to be sorrow. And hell will be kindled by the wrath of God. And it will be kindled by the tares that are continuously thrown in. And just like you, you throw wood on, on a fire to keep it burning, that fire is going to be kindled by those tares being thrown in there. And again, weeping and gnashing of teeth, it, it typifies unrelenting torture and sorrow. And it will be conscious. It will be felt. And it will be eternal. It will be forever. The wrath of God poured out against sin. That's what hell is. Hell is a representation of the gravity of our sins and how eternal sin is the punishment for it that the God man Jesus Christ paid for that's why those who believe have what eternal life because our sin debt has been paid but to those who don't believe they're going to have to pay for their sins forever not for 100 years or 200 years or uh, whatever their lifespan would have been on this earth. No, they're going to have to pay for it forever. So that's the left hand, those who are the tares. 
the reward for the true sons of the kingdom far outweigh anything that God has for us on this earth. That is a glorious promise that we have. As opposed to the tares, Jesus says, the righteous will shine forth. Verse 43, as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Far better to be with the father than to be with the devil. Let me say that again. Far better to be with the father, God the father, than with the devil. Far better to be, to have the Lord on your side than not on your side. The reward for the true sons is eternity with the father with all of his blessings. That is the great reward that we have. They are on Christ's right hand to whom he will say, come you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. That's Matthew 25 and 34. So the left hand is going to be what? Depart from me. The right hand is going to be come you blessed of my father. Man, those are going to be some great words. Amen. <laughs> and uh, those are some blessed words for, for true believers to hear. Come. Not depart from me. You know, John MacArthur said, depart from me are the three most terrifying words in all of the English language because those are final words. When he says depart from me, that's it. There's no turning back. There's no, there's no compromising. There's no plea bargaining with God or trying to strike a deal for a lesser sentence. There's no parole or probation that sentence but to the true sons the wheat he's going to tell us what come you blessed of my father so what are the blessings uh, in being a true son of the kingdom number one we are now sons of God 1 John 3, 2. Listen to this glorious passage. Beloved, John is speaking to the saints, the church. Now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he, Christ, is revealed, we shall be like him, praise the Lord, for we shall see him as he is. And then he says, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. That's our motivation. As we live out our salvation, our motivation is that one day we're going to do what? Behold Christ. We're going to see him as he is in all of his glory. That is one of the blessings of being a true son of the kingdom. What is another blessing? That God is now our father. John 20 and 17. Jesus says. Excuse me. He said this to Mary. Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to my father. 
but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. So that is another blessing in being a true son of the kingdom. One, we're now sons of God. Now, God is our father. And as we shine forth, another one, our bodies will become glorified bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, 53, Paul says, I was meditating on this passage a couple weeks ago. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Our corrupt bodies, our bodies are corrupt with sin, and because our bodies are corrupt with sin, we die. We have health problems. We have bad knees. We have infertility. We have all types of things that happen to our bodies because of what? Because of sin. But one day, we're going to put on immortality. One day, we're going to exchange, as we sing a song in church, we're going to exchange this body for a glorious body. We're going to exchange this corrupt body for a crown. We're going to have glorified bodies. Our bodies are going to be restored. We won't have those aches and pains anymore. Sometimes when I get out to bed, my knees pop. <laughs> snack, crack, snack, crackle, and pop. When I was driving back yesterday, I was trying to pop my knee while I was driving, you know, just kind of doing like that because it was, you know. But one day I won't have to worry about popping my knees anymore. I'll be a sprightly young 25-year-old body again, I guess. I don't know. You know, huh? Yeah, forever and ever, amen. But this corruptible is going to put on what? Incorruption. This mortal is going to put on immortality. That is the great blessing of being a true son of the kingdom. And do you know what's sad about this? And this is a good evangelistic thing. You have people who say that like the bodies that they're in so to speak so they go and take drugs or have surgery done to their bodies where this oh you know they call it plastic surgery and what they call it cosmetic surgery they get all these things done to their bodies to quote enhance their bodies they have a warped view of their bodies that they are made beautiful in God's image David said in Psalm 139 that uh, we were fearfully and what wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows well. We are a marvelous work of God. God made us. He created us just as he wanted us to be. We're going to talk about that Wednesday night here in a few weeks about uh, a worldview of beauty, biblical worldview of beauty. But God made us. He didn't make our bodies to destroy our bodies, to mutilate our bodies, to, to try to achieve some type of 
perfect man-made standard. And people go around messing up their bodies, causing irreversible damage to their bodies. Why? Because they are trying to achieve man's standard of beauty and not living with God's standard. You know what God's standard of beauty is? You. Think about that. That's a biblical word of your beauty. God's standard of beauty is you. Why? Because you are imago Dei. You are an image bearer of who? God. You're not an image bearer of man. You're an image bearer of God. God made you. God formed you in your mother's womb. God made your body the shape that it is, whether it's a pear shape or a rectangle or whatever. God made it. He made it. It is a body. Because who made you? Because when you look at your body and say, ah, yeah, I don't, eh, 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 you're saying to God, I don't like the way you made me. That's what you're saying. And the old folks you say it's tight, but it's right. <laughs> okay? And I say all this in the context of this passage because we belong to a different kingdom. Yes, we may not like the way our bodies look. But it's not God's fault. It's our fault for how we look at our bodies. We don't look at them as God sees them. We look at them and we, you know, to, to bear God's image means to mirror or image God. That's what it means. We mirror, we're to mirror and image God. But what we do instead of holding up the mirror and image to God, we hold up a uh, mirror and image to the world. And look at the world standard. This is how the world says your lips should be. This is how the world says your behind should be. This is how the world says your chest should be. Men, this is how the world says your hair should look. You should have gray hair. Go get just for men. Go get Rogaine because you got those that, 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 that receding hairline. You know, you don't want to go bald. That's, that's old. That's what the world says. It's the effects of sin on the human mind. And we begin to look at other people instead of worshiping God and looking to him. But regardless of how our bodies look, guess what? They're still not perfect. Our bodies are still mortal. Our bodies are still corruptible. No matter what you do to your body, no matter how much you try to look like you're 25 again when you're 60, you're not going to look 25. Now, there are some men and women who look younger than their age. Praise God for that. They have good genes. I mean, I don't look 65, do I? Anyway, uh, but even though we do all these things, our bodies are still what? Corrupt. We're still going to age. Age always wins. So we don't put our hope. What did Paul say? Our hope should be where? In him. That's where we put our hope. It is in God. 
we know that one day we're going to put off this body. And that is a blessing of being a son of the kingdom. That we know that one day our bodies will become glorified. And we will have truly perfect bodies that will last how long? Forever. In all of eternity. I don't think they're going to be um, cosmetic surgery clinics in heaven. <laughs> Amen. Maybe a couple massage tables or something. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> you know, some uh, Manny and Patties, you know, whatever the case may be. Anyway, so, but th th that's, the, that's the one, th those are some of the blessings of being uh, sons of the kingdom. Amen. Let's look at our implications and applications here. It's got five of them. Number one, I don't have a list of them. Just listen to them, write them down if you want to sketch them out. False Christians are often not revealed until the end. Okay? We're not to be inspector gadgets. Now, some signs are evident earlier and others perhaps later. Paul says here to Timothy uh, about elders, but there's a general principle here. He says, some men's sins are clearly evident preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. You're saying this in the context of choosing elders, but there's a general principle here, and that's that uh, false Christians are not often uh, revealed until the end. Some you can tell right away. And some won't be revealed until the end when Christ comes back and does that great uh, sends those angels to do that great separation of the wheat and tares. Number two, the king determines the eternal destiny of the righteous and the wicked. The subjects don't get to choose that. The true king does. Christ is the one who's going to give that judgment. And you can read in Matthew, the 25th chapter. On that great day. He is the one who's going to determine that. Number three. This is a good one right here. Satan opposes the kingdom of God by means of stealth, deceit, and counterfeit religion. That's what he does. He does it by stealth in the cover of night. Satan is never going to announce himself. Okay. But the presence of evil does not mean that Christ is not expanding and advancing his kingdom. Never think that. Christ is still building his church because what did he say to Peter? Upon this rock, I will what? Build. Build is continuous. He will continue to build his church. The gates of hell are going to come up against the church. Satan is going to sow tares among the wheat. But what did Jesus say? The gates of hell will not what? Prevail. Yes, they will come. They will come up against the church. They will try to tear down the church just as the world is trying to do right now. They, secularism has run through all institutions. Government institutions, schools, companies, corporations is encroaching in the church. But the true church will prevail. The false apostate churches, they're going to become part of the tares. They're going to be taken away. They're going to be swept away by this secularism that's in our culture. 
but the true church, guess what, is going to prevail. The greatness of Christ's kingdom will only appear at the end of the age. Next, God provides abundant grace for believers to live in an evil age. And he's doing that, isn't he? God is giving us great grace to live in this evil age we're in. It is an evil age. Believers should not be surprised that evil exists at the same time and under God's providential reign. We should not be surprised. It should grieve us, yes. But we shouldn't be surprised. Did y'all see the story about those three kids that killed that 73-year-old man in, uh, in New York? One of them was 10 years old. Yeah, beating him to death. 3 o'clock in the morning in New York. Three kids. One of them was 10. Three o'clock in the morning. And they videoed it. That's what, that's, what, that's what people do now. They stand around and video it. Like it was a video of three girls who tore up a, uh, a, a place in New York City because they charged $1.75 for sauce and they just, they just, uh, tearing the, just ransacking the place. And you know what all the other guys are standing around doing? Videoing it. No, nobody stopped them. All those men that were standing back there, they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Encouraging them. They caused $25,000 of damage to that, to that uh, business. And people standing around looking. Why? Because of lawlessness. We should not be surprised by that. It should grieve us. It should lead us to prayer. But we should not be surprised by the evil that we see in this world. Because we live in an evil age. You still got people raging about the Supreme Court decision. Even our president's trying to come up with different ways to make sure that women can kill their babies. Companies offering to pay women up to $4,000 to travel across state lines to kill their babies. But God graces Christians to do what? Live in the midst of this evil age. And lastly, we should not seek to establish God's kingdom in the present age by political power or by Christianizing the world. This does not mean that Christians should not be involved in politics. But we can't establish God's kingdom through politics. We live according to our identity as sons of the kingdom and we live out the righteousness of the kingdom under the authority of the king. The best way we can influence the world is by living as Christians, living as part of a different kingdom, showing people through our life and through our witness that there is a better way. That is the only way. The Christian life is not an option among many other choices. It is the only way to live. That's how we present Christianity. It's not an option among many. It's not like a buffet. No, the Christian life is the only life to live. You can elect people that have an R behind their name or a D behind their name or an I behind their name. When you put them in office, you find out that they have a secular worldview. They don't have a Christian worldview. 
You can't do it through political power because Christ's kingdom is not of this world. We are to live as subjects of God's kingdom. We live in righteousness. We live under the authority of the king. And know in the end that Christ will do the separating with his angels of the wheat from the tares. Amen. Let us pray. Father, evil seems to be advancing in the present age and your judgment seems to be ignoring the wickedness of the world. But Lord, your judgment is coming and it will be just, it will be ultimate, and it will be eternal. May we hold on to this hope that you will judge the world of evil and that you will reward the true sons and daughters of your kingdom. In Christ's name I pray, amen.